Well, every now and then we, we make the decision to only have so many classes available. And so you have a bunch of little, little awesome people in here today. And I want to just encourage you right now, if you are someone in the room without a child sitting next to you that is yours or that you're responsible for, at some point, a kid's going to start wrestling and moving around. I want you to turn around and put your hand on the parent and say, you're doing a great job, okay? And just know that, like, it is good that God's, God says that his word will not fall void, and I believe that it is valuable that our children get to worship with us from time to time. And so this is something that we don't just do to give volunteers a, a break, but it's actually something that's intentional and good. And so thank you for those of you that um, understand your kids might be wrestling and, and, and impatient, but you still continue to bring them here and do this today. I mean, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the book of Acts. If you don't have your Bibles, just flip up your hands and the, and the ushers will give you one to use. Um, we're actually starting the book of Ephesians today, so it's interesting that I said Acts, but we'll get there in a second. Uh, a few months ago when, when we were praying about where to go next, I, I really wrestled with, I knew one thing was for sure. I really wanted to do a Pauline letter. Since the beginning of Rev, we have not actually done a letter from the Apostle Paul, and so I thought, well, let's start praying about that. And as we prayed about where to go, it was probably, I don't know, back in in March or even before then that it kind of set in my heart that I feel like Ephesians is where we need to go. As a church, I feel like it's where I need to be as, as a person, as a follower of Jesus. It's just somewhere that I think we should go. And the reason is, is kind of twofold. One is the, the book of Ephesians is, is, is an interesting letter that Paul wrote, and we'll get there um, in, the, in that today. But it's, it's this kind of this letter to this church in Ephesus and kind of a circular letter that's meant to go around the surrounding areas as well. But it's a letter that's sent to this church in Ephesus that has kind of lost their way. Not that they're, they're, they're far off, but, but, but culture and everything that's kind of seeping in, and we'll talk more about this next week, has, has started to affect the beliefs of the entire church, the leadership of the church, the, 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 the households of the church. It was just kind of bleeding in. And the Apostle Paul, with every single right, could come in and just rebuke the snot out of these people. But he doesn't. It is such a gentle letter. Such a, such a, such a gentle beautiful letter to remind the people in Ephesus what, who is Christ and, and what, what does he mean to us and what does it look like? And I can't help but feel like the church today and even, even here at Rev and kind of around, I feel like maybe we need that gentle reminder. If we're not careful, we start paying attention to, to social media and everything else that's out there. If we're not careful, we can start to understand how culture will affect the church and pretty soon we just get slightly off and slowly and slowly and slowly get further and further away. If you remember back, if you're here at the beginning of the year, I challenged all of us in the book of Matthew to make this a year of a year of authenticity. I said, well, we're not going to just say we believe something, but our life will actually be marked by that belief. It won't be, we won't be people of, of hypocrisy. We'll be people of an authentic faith. And I think that, that Ephesians is just another reminder of who we are. In fact, 35 times the phrase in Christ or in him or some derivative of it happens in, in, in Ephesians. The first three chapters in Ephesians are just about who Christ is and what he's doing. In fact, there's only one command in all of the first three chapters, and it's remember. And then the last three chapters are this very practical kind of working its way out. And if we're not careful, we take them out of order. We don't pay attention to these first three chapters. We don't just sit in these first three chapters. We may start trying to do on our own strength. And if we're not really careful, then we're going to start doing without this healthy understanding of who Christ is to us. And so what we decided today, this week and next week, we're going to, we're going to kind of preface Ephesians with two things. Today is the Apostle Paul. We're going to talk about the author himself. And then next week, we're going to do kind of an overview of Ephesus at the time so we can kind of understand what's going on at that point. And then from there on, we'll be verse by verse. But if you've, if you've spent any time in the church, you, you know that the Apostle Paul, and in, 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 we all understand him, he's kind of our superhero, Right? 
If you were a kid and you were kind of in the raise in the church or Awana's like, who do you want to be like? Most of us wouldn't say Jesus because that felt weird, right? We're like, well, we can't say Jesus because there's only one Jesus, but I know we're called to be like him. But man, Paul, the Apostle Paul, that guy is, seems untouchable, right? He's, he's beaten and left for dead who knows how many times. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. He's beaten and left. He's super hard-pressed. He's shipwrecked three times. And on the third time, he gets bitten by a snake. I kind of feel like if I was Paul, I'd be like, come on, God, I'm doing your work here. Like, what's going on? But he doesn't seem changed or faded. In fact, people say, well, we're going to kill you. And he's like, well, to die is gain. Okay, we'll let you live. Well, to live is Christ. All right, we're going to beat you. My present sufferings don't compare to the future glory in heaven. All right, well, then we're going to imprison you. Fine, give me a hymnal. I'm going to convert the guards and the people here, and we're going to go, we get them all to Christ. In fact, while you're at it, while I'm in prison, I've been meaning to write 70% of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. So can you get me a pen and paper, please? I mean, the guy seems untouchable. It's unbelievable. This guy, is, is, he's, he seems like a rock star. And if we're not careful, we can start to idolize him. And this is a letter of a pastor, Pastor Paul, writing to some of his followers in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. But see, what's interesting is, 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 is Paul, there's, this, there's, this, there's interesting facts about him. First off, he was, he was born in, in kind of in Tarsus, modern-day modern Turkey. Okay, he was born to, to Jewish, uh, he was a Benjamin, uh, Benjamite li- lineage, Hebrew ancestry. His parents were Pharisees, which were fervent Jewish nationalists at the time. And so he, he grew up at this. At age 13, he sent off to school to, to study under one of the most well-known rabbis, Gamaliel. So he spends his time under this incredibly well-known rabbi, learning how to argue, learning how to, to study scriptures. And he perfected and, and studied the, 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 the letters of the prophets and the Psalms and, and all of the, uh, the Old Testament law. And he, he spent time being educated and educated and educated. In fact, he was so educated that by the time he was done, around Jesus' time, he was kind of born about the same time as Jesus, actually. And around Jesus' crucifixion, most assume that at that point, Saul was, Paul, was, was a full-fledged Pharisee. And he, was, he became a lawyer, and he was, he was like a shoe-in for the Sanhedrin. The, the, he, was, he was like guaranteed pretty much to be there because of his posture. And so here's this, this guy that has all this education. I mean, he's gone to, you know, every seminary that we can think of. Like, the guy knows God's word, and he is, he is following God. And he's just this life that parallels with Jesus that we, as Christians, don't really know much about. We know kind of his history, where he was born, and some of those things. But as he parallels, we don't know much. In fact, you want to know where Paul starts for us in the Bible? If you want, you want to flip, I said, turn to Acts 9. You want to go back two chapters to Acts 7. This is the first time that Paul shows up biblically, okay? So this, this man that we all hold is, is this amazing person, and he's this incredible, incredible follower of Jesus. He's doing so many good works, wrote 70% of the New Testament. In chapter 7, in fact, let me set the scene a little bit. This is about two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, okay? There's this, there's this man named Stephen who, who's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he gets tried in, 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 a, in court because they're telling him, the Jewish leaders at this time, even though they had done that same thing with Jesus two years prior, are saying, this is not, this is a false, this is not right, you shouldn't be doing this. Well, it's kind of the second boiling point of the new church. The first, obviously, being Jesus' crucifixion. And so what we have to understand is that the, the Romans at this time had given the Jewish leaders like freedom to try people, but not really freedom to kill anyone. That's why they had to involve all the Roman leadership with Jesus at this time. But here this, 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 this court goes kind of crazy 
It's one of those moments that seems kind of out of control. Everything kind of happens super, super fast. And the next thing you know, these men that were trying him are, are coming out. And they're, they're walking outside the eastern gate. It's called Stephen's Gate today. And Jerusalem is still there. And they're walking out and they, they stone Stephen to death. In verse, in verse um, 54, it says, Now when they had heard these things, they are in age. These things that they had heard was what Stephen was saying. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our rock star is the guy that holds the coats stoically standing there watching this man be killed in Jesus' name. This is, our, this is our rock star. This is our superhero where we introduce to him biblically he sets on scene holding the garments for those that are killing someone who proclaims Jesus Christ. In fact, Stephen, before he passes, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then we get a chapter break in verse, and chapter 8 comes, but, but it's kind of a continuous thing here. Chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. Our rock star, the guy that we're going we're gonna to say is, you know, responsible for 70% of the New Testament, how he sets up and how we are introduced to him by the author, by the author Luke of Acts is he's the man that holds the coats and approves of the killing of Stephen. In fact, it just goes right on. It says, in verse, in verse um, 8-1, And Saul approved his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here is our introduction to this man, Paul that we all know. His, his name was Saul. He was born as Saul. Paul is actually his Hellenistic name. It's a Greek name. In fact, most scholars believe that the reason why he introduces himself in, this, in the letter of Ephesians and some of the other ones as his, as his Greek name is because of what happened in his conversion, where, where Jesus is telling him that he's going to be the person that's actually sent out to the Gentiles. And so Paul's using that as a way to, to align himself and say, hey, you guys won't understand this whole Saul name, this Hebrew name this Aramaic name, but let me, let me give you the Greek name that I now go by. And so here's Paul. Well, what happens between that, that Saul and the Paul of the letter? If you spent any time in the church, you know about his conversion. We're going to go there in just a second. But before we go there, I, I want to just challenge you really quickly. It'd be so easy for us to just, just right to the end, go right to the end of the story and say, oh yeah, we know what happened. This is how, this is how it works. This is where, it's, this is where we're going. But if you, if you remember correctly, the, the point of, a, of this Ephesians letter even is because those who were following Jesus had lost their way. Those who were following Jesus had lost their backbone. They were struggling to understand how it applied to them necessarily, how Jesus applied to them. And so even them, in early, very, very few little separation from Christ, missed their way. So, so maybe some of us that know Paul's conversion story, we know this story so easily, we just rush to the end and we just assume we get it. But I want, I want to encourage you to come to this like some of the children in the room would the first time maybe they've heard it. 
And let God's word speak to you in this because, because what happens to Paul is, is something that I think if we don't pay attention to that, if we don't acknowledge what's actually happening to him, I think that we can miss kind of the point of the whole letter. I, I think we can miss it completely. And so if you turn back again to Acts chapter 9, um, verses, verses 1 through 20 is where we'll be. So Acts chapter 7 is where Paul's there about two years past where he is persecuting and persecuting and persecuting the church. He is, he is imprisoning. Now at this point, Paul's got a name, Saul. Everyone knows who Saul is. Anyone in the early church at this point knew Saul and knew what he was capable of and knew what he was doing. In fact, I wrote it this way um, in my notes. Ar- arguably, there is no one more frightening or more vicious than a religious terrorist, especially when he believes that he is doing the will of the Lord by killing innocent people. Right? We, we, can, we can understand that a little bit. But here's Paul. Here's Saul. He's, he's, he's on a mission to eradicate anyone that follows this the way, the way of Jesus Christ, because he is fully believing that it is hostile to the God he has served and studied and known for years of his life. He's been trained on how to defend the law. He's been trained on how to argue you into understanding that you are wrong, and he's right. And so he is, he is on a mission to eradicate this thing called Jesus' followers. And so here he is. And in chapter 9, we pick up two years of just brutal Saul works happening. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, verse 1, sorry, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which was another way to say those following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so, so Paul is so, like, he's done such a great job in Jerusalem. He's like, you know what, hey, high priest at this time, can you give me permission to head out to Damascus, you know, 150 miles away from here, north? Can you give me permission to go there and start, start getting rid of the, the following there too? Because I hear murmurs that up north and in Damascus and even further, a little bit Antioch, there's, there's some decent moving, movement happening. And I, I don't want anyone to follow this. I want this to be gone. And so he gets permission from the high priest to do so. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here's this scene setting. He's, he's walking with the people around him, and this bright light comes. Now the people around him don't see any of that, but they hear this voice speaking. Now I... I kind of wish we had a little bit more there, but I don't know. Like, I kind of feel like maybe Paul was crazy if I was with him. Like, you can't see your eyes. I mean, your eyes are open. What are you talking about you can't see? Like, dude, I'll carry your bag for you if you're just being lazy. Like, if that's what it is. Like, we're not that far. Right? But we don't get anything from these people following him. We get nothing else from them. We don't know what happens to these people. But they did hear this voice. They did hear this conversation between Saul and and Jesus, who identifies himself. In fact, I'm sure a lot of us can say we've heard God speak at other times, but this is the only time that we have biblically where Jesus audibly speaks down to someone. 
It's the only time God has done it before, but Jesus is the first time that Jesus does it, and it's the only time that it happens. And so, so he, he sets up this opportunity for Saul to hear Jesus' voice. G, Paul, Saul is obviously tormented, and I, I kind of tend to believe that those three days, Saul kind of went back through his theology classes. Right? Because if you're Saul, you spent the last two years persecuting those who are following Jesus. Now Jesus just tells you from a voice from heaven and the light and you're blind that he is, he is essentially the Messiah and that Saul is persecuting him. I feel like Saul's like, oh man, I wish I had my 101 classes again. I feel like he's probably going through the bank of his brain going, okay, when Gamaliel said this, when Rabbi said this, how did this fit? How did the, law of the, how did the letter of the prophets, as they're speaking, could it be that Jesus is this Messiah? Like, have, have I missed it this whole time? So he spends three days fasting, not eating or drinking, blind in this room. And I, I, I think he's in his head. We don't know necessarily what's happening, but I think he's in his head running through his theology classes, running through his understanding, all the teachings he's known, playing in his mind the voices and the faces of those that he's persecuted. I mean, I'm assuming that some of us have been wrong at something some point in our life. But my bet is, is that compared to this Saul character, none of us had it that wrong, right? Like we weren't out crucifying other Christians. We may have said some really silly things before faith or confidence that we thought in our own arrogance, our own pride, but probably few of us have had others imprisoned or killed because of believing in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe this is just me. I'd feel like dirt, I feel like right now, if, if Saul were going to feel anything in this setting, I bet there's a, an immense amount of guilt pressing in on those shoulders. Starts thinking like, well, now what do I do? How, how do I undo? I've got these letters from the high priest. Everyone in Jerusalem knows what I'm coming for. These people in Damascus aren't fooled by me. They know who I am. And so he spends three days, three days in his head. Then verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now Ananias, I think most of us can relate to, and I'll get there in a second, okay? This is, this is probably most of us that have been following Jesus for a while. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I want to pause here. Okay. Ananias gets this beautiful word from, from God. Here I am, Lord, and he knows who he's talking to. And God basically tells him, here's what you need to do, Ananias. I've already set this up. In fact, while Saul's in his head and praying, I've already given him this vision of you. Okay? Ananias does what I think every single one of us would do. Uh, Lord, yeah, I've heard of this dude. Okay? I've heard of him. I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem? God, I, I, like, are you sure it's him? You want me to go do something to him? Like, let alone walk. I bet he has a piece of paper with my name on it. And my brothers and my sisters, you know how many family members I've lost because of this man? And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias does what all of us do. We look at someone and say, ah, pff, God, you can't save that person. 
Oh, come on. They're, they're so evil and so ugly and so horrible. How dare you show that person grace? I mean, how many times do we see that from the people of God? Jonah? I mean, all over in the Bible. People keep forgetting that God's grace transcends all of our understanding. Ananias, in a vision with the Lord, in a conversation, starts disagreeing with him. Just let me say this, please. Like, do, do your pastor a favor. If the Lord starts speaking to you, please don't disagree with him, okay? Just like, you know what? Like, you may want to disagree with him. You may want to be like, but just, just you know what? Just say, okay, God, speak. Let's do this, all right? Like, just throw me a bone on that one, okay? So I can feel a little bit more confident as a pastor. But here's Ananias, right? He's, he's, he's arguing with Jesus, or God. He's saying, like, you don't, like, you know what he's done for you? As if God is confused. Whoa, he did what? No way, and no, that's too much. How dare you? Like, God's not confused. In fact, God doesn't even engage in that conversation with Ananias. Look what he does. But the Lord said, go. <laughs> go. Not like, oh, I hear you. I understand. Thank you. So just get up and go, okay? I like to say it's kind of condescending. That's not God's voice, just so you know. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I feel like that line right there was for Ananias. It's like, oh, okay, he's going to suffer. I'm in. You know, right? Like, because it's like, okay. Like, first you tell me to go. It's like, okay, I should go. Oh, he's going to suffer? Oh, okay, let's do this. Let's, that's great. How much is he going to suffer here, right? So he's, he's like, I will show him how much he'll suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hand, hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I want to know who baptized him. <laughs> Just another fun one, right? For some days he was with the disciples, at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Talk about a transformation, right? Like, I mean, this is insane. Here's, here's Saul. Okay, I, I'm thinking Ananias does it, which is kind of like, I wonder if he held him down longer. You know, it's like, maybe this is how he suffers. You know, like, I don't know what he did there. But, but he gets baptized, and he's, he's, he's near Damascus, he's in Damascus, and at this point, every single, every single believer of the way, every follower of Jesus knows about Saul of Tarsus. And here Saul comes walking and baptized into the synagogues and starts preaching Jesus Christ. What, what changed? What changed? I think, see, most of us, we have this idea that before Christ, we were a plumber, and then after Christ, we're no longer a plumber, right? I mean, we, we feel like there's this, this transformation of this entirety of who we are changes. But I think what we have to understand is that Paul was just as aggressive prior to Christ. He was just kind of misoriented in the direction he was going. Like, like Saul was just as aggressive as Paul was. He just reoriented his thinking. So there's a characteristic that didn't change, but I think also what happens is most of us don't realize that when we actually experience the gospel, something radically transforms in us. See, we assume that the gospel is just something that can kind of come along with us, like an app upgrade. We already got the app. We just need the, new, you know, the latest, greatest version, like just the 2.0 version because there's a little glitch in this first one. We assume that the, the, the gospel of Jesus, that, that Jesus Christ coming in and an experience with him and his truth and recognizing his sacrifice and his, his work on the cross, that that doesn't need to shape or alter our lives. 
And that's what, that's what Saul, who we all know as Paul, is communicating to the church in Ephesus. He says, you, you, in Christ. In Christ. He's not even smacking him across the head. He's gently reminding him, like, look, look guys, you're, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. The gospel does something drastically different. The gospel changes every single thing about us. Well, the apostle Paul spends about, almost, we assume about 11 to 13 years in kind of Damascus, Jerusalem, and, and Sicilia, where he's around modern-day modern day Turkey. So most of us think of this apostle Paul gets converted and gets, you know, becomes a rock star. Well, he, he was preaching in the synagogues the next day. What ends up happening is he spends most of his time in Damascus. And, and this, is, this is my interjection, so please read the scriptures and look at this. But I, I, I can't help but feel like maybe Paul, Saul, he still struggled with his past. Right? Like he was still doing what God called him to. He was confident and he was speaking at synagogues. But like he really still kind of still realized that like when he walked into a room, there was always that person that was like, you had my brother murdered. You killed my sister and their children. You took the income from this household because you imprisoned their father. And I can't help but feel like, again, this isn't giving the early Christians much credit, but I can't help but feeling like maybe they, they still kind of looked at him that way. And so for uh, nine to ten years, we have an idea of where, where Paul is, and we get kind of account of that through the scriptures, but nothing really happens. There's no New Testament <laughs> written. There's no missionary journey, and then something crazy happens. The first mega church, about 150 miles north of Damascus in Antioch. This is like, this is where the, like, Christianity is blown up. Mind you, with a number of displaced Christians because of what Paul had done in Jerusalem. Okay, so there's this church in Antioch that this man Barnabas is, is kind of lead pastor. And there's two other individuals that are there as well. And he's this lead pastor, and, and, and Barnabas decides, you know what? I don't know, like, what happens in his prayer life or where he's studying, but he knows about the Saul of Tarsus. He knows what he's capable of. And Barnabas packs his bags, heads all the way to modern-day Turkey from Antioch, and says, hey, Saul, you're coming with me. Come on, buddy. I got a church that I'm pastoring. I want you to come pastor with me. And Barnabas sticks his neck out on the line, his reputation, everything for this man, Saul. Takes him to a church where numbers of households, this, again, Antioch, this is the, like, like the first ever mega church. It's a huge, huge following of Jesus in this, in this big metropolitan area, this huge, huge community. And he, he takes him up there and says, come pastor with me. Come pastor with me, Saul. Knowing full well that a lot of the people in, Saul's, in, in Barnabas' church that are hanging out, are placed there or displaced there because of the work of Saul as a Pharisee. And it's in this spot where I feel like Paul gets kind of the most healing. This, again, this is interjection. This is my own thought here. But from here out, like, we, it's where we get the, to die as gain, to live as Christ, Paul. Like this, is, like, this is where it happens. So Barnabas sticking his neck out on the line for Saul brings him underneath the church of Antioch and works with him for about, we assume, about two years. And it's in that time where the leaders of that church start praying and they realize that, you know what? Saul is actually supposed to be getting the word of God to the Gentiles. Like this is what's supposed to happen. And so the leaders being submitted to the Holy Spirit in prayer realize that they're supposed to send their lead pastor, Barnabas, <laughs> and Saul together on a missionary journey. And so begins the Apostle Paul that we all know so affectionately and love. 
That's where his missionary journey begins. It, it, took, it took someone sticking their neck out for him. I, I wonder, I mean, you know, Jesus says to Ananias, he is for, he's who I'm using, chosen instrument. He's my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was just kind of stuck in his own head, in his own place, not really doing much for the Gentiles. In fact, he, he wasn't really doing much at all. And I wonder if, if Barnabas had never come and said, you know what, come on, buddy. I got some work for you. I need you to pastor you. I need you to, I need you to come here. I want you to learn this underneath me. And then we're, we're going we're gonna to just keep seeing what God does. And then those leaders were faithful enough to, to listen to the Holy Spirit and pray to God's will. And that was when the missionary journeys began for Paul, when he started moving from place to place. So when he's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, he spent three years here. So he knows the people in this church. He doesn't maybe know the surrounding areas as well. You know, the, the, he knows the Boise, but doesn't know the Meridian and Cuna and all those other areas, right? Like he's, he's kind of familiar with them. And so Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians because he's saying, look guys, the gospel does something to you. In fact, the, who, who Jesus is is so profound and so big that we just need to spend some time worshiping him. And, and in worshiping him, you'll realize that your life isn't about yourself. You'll realize very quickly to die is gain. To die to self is the way that we're supposed to live. And it will change our life. So what's our, our takeaway? Um, for those of you that love points, you're going to hate the first three chapters of Ephesians, just so you know. There's very little practical takeaways. So it's going to be a lot of, well, sit with the Lord this week, okay? So just get ready for that, okay? Um, and I, I feel like the, the, the same can be said for today. The Apostle Paul, we can learn a couple things very easily from his life. First one is, is that the gospel shad, should, shall, and does affect our lives. For those of you that profess the name of Christ and you don't see much effect of the gospel in it, like, don't collect 200. Go back to go and figure out where you, you, you messed up. The gospel changes who we are. And again, it's not this, like, Paul was still the crazy, outgoing, like, get-in-your-face, debate kind of person. In fact, he just, God just reoriented it. In fact, I, I wrote it in, in my way, in, in my notes this way. The gospel of Jesus changes us. It reorients all of our lives for his purposes. It takes who we are and makes it into being used for his glory. So the gospel changes who we are. So a simple takeaway would be those of you that profess to follow Jesus, do you see a Saul version of yourself and a Paul version of yourself? Maybe some of you need to start going by your middle name just to like rethink, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. But like, right, like, is there, is there a difference? And it's not a difference, and this is what we'll learn in Ephesians, this is what's so beautiful, it's not a difference that you do. It's not even a difference that you can muster the strength to make happen. In fact, the reason why Paul could stand up and say, well, okay, to die is gain or to, to live is Christ or to, you know, you're gonna beat me, great. Well, this doesn't compare to my future, the future glory that I'm gonna experience. The reason why he could say that so confidently wasn't because of him at all. It was because Paul didn't seem, um, didn't seem to be any less sold out for God before Christ. Think about it. He was so sold out for God that he was willing to kill people because they were doing the wrong. But his, his mindset got reoriented to the gospel. He started, he started looking at it, and he could say, just through thinking, he knew that everything about God and his, view, and his views were all through the lens of Jesus as Messiah. 
So the reason why Paul could say that all so confidently is because he, not, he knew none of the work was of him. The work was of Christ. He, he, he settled on that. And I kind of want to think that he settled on that like at the beginning in those first three days. Jesus really is the Messiah. Okay, well that's going to make some changes about my life. I'm going to need a new career. I'm going to have to communicate differently. There's a lot of people I need to seek forgiveness of. Oh Lord, please forgive me. See, when you recognize Jesus as Messiah, you can't help but start thinking, oh, well that, well that's going to shift everything in my life. And, and here's, here's the part that we don't like, okay? It's pretty inconvenient. Right? Oh, wait. Does that mean I, I need to start doing something different with my finances? Ooh, Jesus, ah, you're Messiah, but I'm not sure I want to give you that, right? Wait, wait, wait. You, you mean that, that, that the purpose of my life isn't about me? I don't know where we got it wrong, but this book is not about us. Like, for, forgive the leaders before you or the people before you that have made it, that the Bible's about you. The Bible's about God and his glory and what he's doing. He invites us to be a part of it graciously and beautifully and wonderfully, but not for our glory. So the first takeaway is that there should be a different version of you. If there isn't a different version, you might, my homework would be don't start doing more stuff. Stop doing stuff. My homework would be let's, let's, let's start reading just the first three chapters of Ephesians over and over and over again. Those first 12 verses are worship of God. Start reading it over and over and over again. And don't worry, we'll come. There's plenty of commands in the last three chapters. We'll come to what it means to walk in a worthy manner. We'll come to what it means to stand firm in faith, but it never can happen without sitting with Christ first. Second takeaway, and I think this is worth telling all of us, and I think this is probably worth, this might get hijacked by, by social media, but what we can learn from Paul is that he tells us this. No one is too far gone. Let, let me say that again. No one is too far gone. A Taliban leader is not too far gone or out of God's reach. Okay, like, let me, is that, like, that, that kind of cuts at us, right? Because, like, these people deserve, no, God, trust me, God will bring justice to all. and He, he will do, vindication is his. But if we assume some are too far gone, then that's going to seep into how we interact with everyone. No one is too far gone. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in Timothy when he's encouraging Timothy, who, by the way, is pastoring in Ephesus, okay? So he's, in, he's, he's, he's encouraging him. 1 Timothy 1.16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, in Paul, in Saul, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal sin, or eternal life. <laughs> right before that, he's talking about the greatest sinner. I'm the greatest sinner of all. Why? Why did God save me so that others could understand that there's actually hope for them? Like, it can't get much worse than me. And I think I can tell you right now, those three days, I can guarantee Paul felt the weight of how bad it really was. Maybe the issue is that the gospel isn't that good that we don't feel much weight to how bad we are a part of it, or apart from it. Maybe the issue for us is that we don't think that we're that bad, and that's why I'd go back to the next takeaway, or the first takeaway there has to be a different version of us in Christ. It is a reorienting of our lives. 
a reworking of truth, a re-understanding of things, a new creation, a new mind, a new self, all that comes through the work of Jesus Christ. So whether you struggle to see a drastic difference of, you know, Bren B.C. before Christ or Bren after Christ, right, or your, your own personal way, when you look in the mirror, you're like, man, there's just, there's not much of a difference. In fact, if we were really honest, most people looking at my life, not that that's our gauge, but most people looking at my life would be, I don't really see any fruit at all. I don't see any fruit at all. So it begs the question is, 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 are you surrendered to the gospel? Is the gospel disrupting your life? Is it reorienting your thinking? Again, maybe some of you it is a, a job change, but most of you it's not. It's probably just, okay, well, this is who I am now in light of that. And he will, he will breathe his life and his truth in how to be a student that follows Jesus. He will breathe his life in how to be a mom that follows Jesus or a dad or a husband or, a, or an employee at this business, in this position, at this time in our life. But the more and more we see our lives where we look at an aspect of it, whether it's what we do for work or where we go to school or where we live or, or what, it, what happens in our certain friendships or relationships that aren't marked or saturated or look like the gospel, well, there's an issue there. And that's what Paul is going to be communicating. He's, he's telling this whole church in the most gentle and beautiful way. He's saying, hey, hey, guys, you, you're missing it. And, and what's sad about it is you're missing it in a way of the most beautiful way ever to miss it. Like you're missing, you're missing the most beautiful aspect. And I can just almost sense his pastoral heart communicating this. If you just get that, watch out what happens with the rest of it if you can just get these first three chapters, if you can just understand who Christ is, if you can just hear me 35 times say in him, in Christ, if you can just, if you can just breathe life into that, and walking in a worthy manner is, is just, is, is just cake because you understand why you're doing it and how you do it. And that's what Paul does. That's what our, our author does of this book. When he speaks so boldly, one thing we can take heart in knowing is that he actually lived what he's speaking and not some hypocrite that like was some back alley. Did he struggle? Absolutely. He even shares his struggling in his writing. But we can take confidence in knowing that he is, he is fully sold out for Christ. And that's who's speaking to us. So the band's going to come up and we're going to worship. And you guys are going to have to settle in your own hearts of a takeaway of just recognizing that, <laughs> that the gospel affects us. The gospel will reorient our lives. And I want to challenge you if right now you're believing that there is those people or that person or because you saw some Facebook post of them that they obviously don't deserve the grace of God. I want to challenge you. That's, that's not the way of thinking. In fact, Paul tells us that that's not the way to think. He says he was saved just so that you and I many years later can go, oh man, anyone can be saved because Paul was. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, reorienting Saul's world. Thank you for using him to, to bring about a letter that is so incredibly applicable to even the church today. God, it is, it is disconcerting at times to believe and to see where, um, where the church is today and how easy it is for us to slide away from you, to make choices that could, could indoctrinate us in ways that aren't, aren't your truth, Lord. So I pray that we would we would rest in your truth. 
I pray that we would come to your scriptures and as we get ready to study this as, as a church, as a small C church, as a part of the greater church, God, that this would, this would bring about a more authentic following of people that are, that are more sold out, more faithful, not for our glory or for the little C church's glory, but for the name of Jesus Christ alone. God, may we, be not, may we not settle with well enough. And may you just start speaking into our lives of areas that we are, we are, we are weak, of obedience or following, areas that, that have not been redeemed and we're holding on to. God, would you just start wrecking our hearts for that? And God, for, for the person in the room that maybe isn't following Jesus or hasn't really fully surrendered themselves to Jesus or they've been walking for a long time or maybe it's one of the kids in the room that have been following their parents' faith but haven't really set in stone, God, would you remind them that wherever they are, however, however many poor decisions they've made, however far they may feel like they are from you, you are still well within reach. In fact, you're right there. And that no one is too far gone. Maybe if nothing else, Lord, that just causes most of us to start praying for those that we assumed or gave up on that were too far gone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.